welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists of the regenerative movement, people who are committed to planetary purpose. My name is Julian Guderlei, and in today's episode, I'm hosting an interview with Philip Moore, who's back on the podcast. Phil Moore has such a vast background in the world of education and progressive education and uh, education from consciousness. He's personally been mentored and trained by Buckminster Fuller. I'm happy to dive into that topic. He's turned into one of my teachers over the last years in regards to a new educational paradigm and education uh, from love and with love in that sense. And so he's also the founder of Conscious Teachers and TrimTap. And with these words, Phil, welcome back to the show. I'm excited to have you here again. So good to be with you, Julian. Yeah, we want to we want to drop in right away. I think about um, your relationship with with Buckminster Fuller and and simply hear some more stories about um, well, Bucky as a man, but also just how it influenced you as as the the man in the life that that you're you know um, really inspiring thousands and thousands of people to to educate from a, a new paradigm of love. Yeah, well, it's one of my favorite topics because when we uh, think about our mentors and we invoke them, when we use their words or we have these memories of connection, um, something amazing happens to our interbeing. All of a sudden, that, that flavor and that energy and that signature is there. And we really can explore ideas and feelings and intuitions and domains that aren't accessible to us when we're in our individual egoic selves. So talking about Bucky, which is what he wanted us to call him. When I say us, I would say that all of uh, the students of Buckminster Fuller, because he taught in many universities throughout the world, um, but also all, our generation, in particular the generation that Stuart Brand brought into, into focus when he published the first Whole Earth Catalog. And that's really how I, I discovered, and I think so many of my generation discovered Buckminster Fuller. So Stuart Brand being from the Bay Area and being an amazing human being who was putting together these tools and resources for a generation so that we could learn more about organic farming and we could learn about shelter and structure and we could learn about consciousness and put them in this beautiful thing called the Whole Earth Catalog. Um, in the first page of it, as you open the catalog, you saw a dedication to Buckminster Fuller. So anybody who bought one, and I don't know how many millions of them sold, but I'm sure you could Google it and find out. But uh, anybody who bought one and we brought them home and because we didn't have the internet, this was a resource guide that really helped us say that, well, I wanted to build a geodesic dome. How do I do that? Where do I begin? Or, oh, I want to understand the plants in my environment and which ones are medicinal and which ones are foods and how we could survive by being in relationship with plants. All those things were in the whole earth catalog. But I was somebody who was always searching for context. 
I wanted a, a bigger context to understand who I was as a young man in, the, in this world. And I opened up and I saw that first introduction and I read about Buckminster Fuller and then they had maybe two or three pages in the catalog that were dedicated to Bucky. Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth had been published and that was there. Maybe Utopia or Oblivion was published and that was there. And so there was, there were these books by Bucky, but there were also these influences of Bucky, like in Shelter, we saw a, a big section on GDs at domes and we were looking at those triangles and that shape and we were just going, man, this is it. This is not, you know, our grandfather's world. This is not the turn of the century. This is somehow the future pressing into the present. So we all just jumped on that bandwagon. And if you were somebody like me, you wanted to build a dome. And if you wanted to do that, then you wanted to invite your friends to help you build a dome because, you know, I didn't have the skills to really build a dome. Build a dome and then fill the dome with people. <laughs> and then you wanna and then you wanna celebrate. I mean, you wanna not just build a dome, but you want that dome to to house something incredible, you know. So Karen and I in 1970, so almost, you know, 50 years ago, we built a dome in our backyard with university people from Wayne State University, friends of mine, who were all Bucky, uh, you know, Bucky files. I mean, we were all in love with Bucky and we wanted to not just read them and talk about them and learn about synergetic geometry. We wanted to feel it and we wanted to build it and we wanted to experience it. So we built a plastic geodesic dome that was about 24 foot in diameter. And it was a greenhouse in popular science. They had these plans. You just sent in $5 and they sent you these plans. And with a staple gun and with plastic and with furring strips, you had the recipe to build a geodesic dome. And that was the dome that Karen and I were married in. So it didn't last very long, but it lasted long enough for a marriage to occur inside of it and Karen wore a black mini skirt. And so everything about her second marriage, she wanted to be completely different from her first marriage. And that's why the black mini skirt was what she wore. And then, uh, you know, we had our four-year-old daughter be the wedding photographer, which means we got pictures of the duck and pictures of the dog and pictures of people's feet, you know. <laughs> so it was really quite an experience. Photos from the perspective of a child. Yeah, so we had this, but that was really the beginning of actualizing. Bucky was really always encouraging us, and I'll give you the advice that he gave to me. I, um, my grandfather on my mother's side died when my mom was 14 years old. So Carl is his name, and he was a Russian Jew on the run, you know, and that's all I know about him is the stories about him, but I never met him. I have pictures of him and I've heard from my mom some things about Carl or Boris, as he was called by my grandmother. And my grandfather on my father's side was somebody that I did know, but he passed away when I was four or five years old. And so I always was hungry for a grandfather. And very much unlike this idea that arose in our 60s generation, which was, I thought, the stupidest statement about hippies, 
was, um, first of all, I hated the word hippie, so I, I wasn't really, I didn't identify necessarily with that word, but there was a, something about not trusting anyone over 35 years old. And that just made no sense to me at all, you know, and it may have been, you know, some segment of that, of, of, of our youthful revolution that wanted to distrust people over 35 years old, but it was a stupid statement. You know, I totally rejected it. Obviously, all of the Bucky files that I knew were like in love with him, you know, so he was, you know, at this time in his 70s or 80s. So she was that uh, grandfather Buck figure, yeah. The yeah, Buckminster Fuller, it was more than just this is a really wise man and this is a futurist and this is somebody that Stuart Brand likes. It was, ah, I need a grandfather. I want mm. somebody to hold in my heart mm. that will be my North Star. So, what Bucky said to all of us, really, I mean, all of his thinking out loud experiences were something that we would just gather and tune in. And he would do this thing with his hands, you know. It was like he was this, uh, this, this antenna receiving the, the, the feeling of the interbeing that was in the room. And he, would, and he would stand on the stage for a while and he'd wiggle his fingers like this. And then he would go into his thinking out loud. And it was true that there were times that, you know, he would start and two hours would go and then people would start leaving and then more people would start leaving after four hours. And there were times where you were the only one sitting in the audience or two people were sitting in the audience or four people were sitting in the audience and you would go have coffee with them and then there was time that you were the only one there so this wasn't something that necessarily happened to me but once he was tuned in and the universe was flowing through him there was no oh this has to be over in a specific time he was doing his best out loud thinking at that moment and during one of those he said something like is his advice to a young man who needed to adopt a grandfather was take a design science resource inventory of all of your special case experiences that have led to this moment. And then look at the world and see what needs doing that no one else is tending to. Take an initiative based on that. Do that and the living will come. And if someone comes along and does it better than you're doing it, get out of the way. So that was it. That was this, that was like, boom, it just went right into my heart and my solar plexus. I could feel it. And my spinal column said, that's it. That's what I need. I need this advice. Take a design science resource inventory of all the special case experiences. For me, it was, you know, oh, school just made no sense. I was, you know, by second grade, I was really sure that they were doing it wrong. Yeah. First grade, or, the, or I should say kindergarten, I didn't have a problem with school because it was based on the Froebel concept of kindergarten. And as you know, it comes from Friedrich Froebel, and it comes from this idea that play should be central. And so in, in my industrial uh, elementary school in Royal Oak, Michigan, Washington Elementary School, the kindergarten teacher was still teaching from the Froebel world. 
the very same world, by the way, that influenced Buckminster Fuller. Because by the time he went to school as a five-year-old, kindergarten was in place, and he was putting together toothpicks and peas. Peas were kind of like the thing that held the toothpicks. And he was doing that, and because he was so farsighted and he hadn't received his corrective lenses, he could only see blurriness when he looked out at people. He was too close to people. Everything was a blur. So when he was in kindergarten and he was working with his toothpick and peas, all of his classmates were making these things that looked like cubes and rectangles and houses. You know, they, were, they looked like the structures that they saw. But for Bucky, he kept putting them together and he saw that the tetrahedron held its shape. And he got very excited about that. He said, whoa, this holds a shape. Oh my God, what is this? You know, and he was, he was experiencing triangles. And then he built something that you know, began to, to, to be a dome. It wasn't really a dome. I'm not sure what it exactly was. Whatever it was, it was so different than everybody else that was building these things that the teacher you know, made note of it and showed it to his mother to his, you know, and said, wow, look what he did, you know? And that was for him, the beginning of synergetic geometry because he was putting things together and he wanted to know what held its shape. He would say, this has integrity later on. But at first he felt it and he experienced it in the kindergarten. My kindergarten with Mrs. Wow. Gilbert was also a nice experience. So I didn't have trouble. It was a half day. We were outdoors for almost all of the uh, morning. We would come in, we would sing songs, we would play with Lincoln logs and blocks, you know. I didn't have trouble with kindergarten. First grade, woof. It was like I was not ready to read. And, I, and they were starting to push that. And I just knew that I, I was not done playing. Like, where did play go? You know, all of a sudden it changed. And I was in a school that was very much a part of the uh, Detroit automobile culture, meaning that the, even the clocks on the wall, these big, huge clocks, they were run by pneumatics. And so meaning that when the, the big hand would change, it would go in the wrong direction for a little while, and then it would go clockwise. Every time I would watch that clock and it would go in the wrong direction, my heart was like, oh no. You know, I, I couldn't tell time perhaps, but I knew that it had to go around this way in order for me to get out of here. And so I felt like I was a, in a prison very early on. And that feeling of something was wrong persisted in me all throughout my education. By the time I get to be a junior in high school in this system, you know, I'm absolutely certain something is seriously wrong with the way that we're doing education. So it was easy for me to immediately say, well, first it was easy for me to be a critic. And then at some point, Bucky said very pointedly, stop criticizing what's wrong with the existing mm, system. Imply Instead, yourself. find something that's based on generalized principles that makes that system obsolete. Wow. I mean, this is one of Buckminster Fuller's more fa famous quotes, I guess, right? Is making the old system obsolete. There's, there's a lot of uh, things you said in there, Phil, that I'd, I'd love to touch on. Um, 
first I, I googled it the whole earth catalog um the first publication had a thousand issues and then in total there was over two million copies sold in the world um so just for completion um very interesting i'd love to hear more about how you first met buckminster fuller but what you already shared i feel like something i've never heard before that he already explored intuitively those shapes and the integrity of shapes um in, in kindergarten you know like in in the in the sense of like pure play that led him into what later on turned into career design architecture you know philosophy and these concepts of thinking out loud um so what, b before we go deeper into education and quality education and the context of education um maybe tell us how did you first meet buckminster fuller and um you said it already like he was a hero for your all of your peers right like you you as a generation within that generation your your peers and you you, you turned into bucky files you called it yes well um when i graduated from college which was in uh june of 1970 um by this time i was already in in a revolt and I had connected with teachers and some of those teachers in the uh, educational um, education department in Wayne State University, there was a spectrum, you know, on, on one end of the spectrum were the traditional conservative teachers. And then there was a spectrum over here on the left of some that were more progressive. And I kept on being shoved over to them because these ones, I, I would take one, one class and I would know, oh, this is part of the, the reason why school sucks so bad, because if teachers have to be in classes like this and be with this human being right there, who's such an, uh, such a, 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 an ignorant and, and, and also um, just obnoxious kind of a human being, that this is what I know, this is what you have to learn, you know, your, your experiences are, are nothing to me. What's important to me is for me to teach you how to be able to, 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 to really instruct kids and what to do to keep them busy, 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 busy. I, I think I only took one of those classes and maybe only for two weeks, you know, because I just, I love the fact that you could drop a class in the university. So by the time I'm in my uh, sophomore year and junior year, I'm really understanding that, man, if I don't, I'm not paying this person anything from my parents' money, because I wasn't paying for my tuition at that moment, I'm going to drop it, you know. So I probably was, I found the most radical teachers very quickly. And they did everything they could to support me. And they also encouraged me to go further than they could take me. And I was not alone. There was a whole group of us. So we're talking about subcultures of a subculture, right? And that's what happened. So I get into a, to a to a smaller domain, but of exciting human beings. Each time I get kicked out of something, or each time I reject something, I find myself in a group of others, and I am so excited about it that I'm talking about it all the time. And perhaps I knew less than many of the others, but I was just so on fire because I was being rewired. My, my rewirement was just beginning and I was loving it. I was living on spaceship Earth. I understood that the sun never sets and the sun never rises. 
I was, you know, I'm, I'm saying we're going outstairs and in stairs instead of upstairs and downstairs. I mean, I'm just a crazy guy who's, you know, testing all of Bucky's stuff. And then- It's interesting uh, that you mentioned that, like the subculture within the subculture. But in putting that into just really briefly for context for a lot of other episodes on this podcast, I feel like we talk about this idea of islands of sanity quite a bit, where maybe it's a niche within a niche or a culture within a subculture, but these kind of testing incubators of different ways of being, relating and making sense, I believe are so needed, especially in today's world where, you know, it's very easy to be sucked into a mainstream technological point of view. So very, very cool to hear that about your, the beginning of, of that journey, Phil. Yeah, so by the time uh, I marry an older woman, because I need to have the ballast and maturity and experience, I, like you, have aspirations of traveling and living in other cultures. And I want to leave Royal Oak, Michigan, and I want to travel widely, etc. And she's been to the Sorbonne, and we have this beautiful daughter together. And I've adopted her in my heart when she was three and a half years old. And she's just a part of who I am and I love her and I want to do the very best I can to love her into being and um, and her father and I become good friends and that all happens at Wayne State University this guy is here for, Nina's dad is a professor of art and he wants out of the relationship and uh, and I and I want the best for Nina and he wants the best for Nina so he and I start meeting publicly on the lawn of one of the Old Main, one of the buildings that we both, I'm attending classes, he's teaching classes there, and the whole world is buzzing by us, you know, the art community and the education community, knowing that, you know, uh, this is a weird thing to see these two men together and not fighting and jealous or, or, or bitter or anything, but forming bonds. And that's what we were doing at that point. But Karen said to me after I got told that I was not going to be able to go back to the summer camp that I loved so much because I was living in sin with a, with a woman at the summer before. Of course, I never thought of it in any of those contexts, but obviously there were some parents who were sending their kids to the summer camp who talked to the director. The director was a professor of uh, social work at Wayne State University, he calls me into the office, and he says, uh, you know, I have bad news for you. And I said, you know what, you know, I'm not going to be able to do the bike trips that I was doing last year or because, you know, I didn't know what he was going to say, but pretty much he said, you're fired. You know, and then when I said why, he said, well, because you were living in sin. We made a mistake, a miscalculation to have you and Karen and Nina, you know, live with us in, in the Hiawatha National Forest. And, and I just walked out of that meeting crushed. Wow. You know? Whoa. What's That's gonna beyond, happen? yeah. Yeah. So, so then I come back and Karen is there and, and this wise, beautiful woman who, you know, who is a mother and, and, and now recently just my wife. And, uh, and she says, well, well, what do you want to do after you graduate? First of all, none of us really in the Bucky file world wanted to go to graduation because we somehow didn't just trust the ceremony at all. That wasn't it. We wanted to get our degree, we wanted to get out. But um, she asked that question and I said, you know, um, Dwayne, one of my friends, 
you know, said that there's something called World Game, and it's at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, and it's a six-week experience, and I don't know anything more about it than, you know, that Buckminster Fuller's office is hosting it, and it's right where Bucky lives. He and his wife Anne live there in Southern Illinois University, and and I just read World Game: How to Make Human How to Make the world work for 100% of humanity without endangering the natural world. And I thought, well, I wanna do that. I've done this horrible curriculum called university and I got this credential, but this is what I'm really interested in. I wanna do that. And so she just looked at me and said, well, good, let's do that. You know, we'll figure out a way to make that happen. So it was there that I took a deep dive into Buckminster Fuller's world. I met between 30 and 40 other people. Some of them are, are well known to, to, to the world right now. Um, one of them was a guy by the name of Mark Victor Hansen, and he wrote a series of books called Chicken Soup for the Soul. So he, he was one of the people who was with me. The, the person who did World Game before that was a guy by the name of Ed Schlossberg. He, uh, he was a, a genius in several different areas, and he married Carolyn Kennedy and went on to do amazing things that he's still doing with Schlossberg and Associates to make um, museums highly interactive and very, very uh, hands-on. So again, he brought Bucky's ideas, which was always, we've got to have tools, we've got to interact. And so he took that to, to an institution at that time going to a science museum or going to a, a, a natural history museum. It was all stuffed animals behind a glass. You know, it was really deadly on some level. And so Ed radicalized and changed museums. So I found myself there. I found myself working in Bucky's office. I had an opportunity to listen to any of the tapes. There's something called, Bucky had something called the chronophile. And he used to call it guinea pig B. B stands for Bucky. He was his own guinea pig. So he wanted to know what one man could do on behalf of all of humanity. And that's why he called himself a trim tab. And he was, he meticulously, anything he wrote on, any, uh, any uh, lecture he gave, anything that he published, anything that he was involved with were in this vault in the office. And I was, I was there under the pretext of trying to figure out something like how much does primitive shelter weigh on the planet? There was some ridiculous task that I was in my group assigned. And so I was given access to Bucky's office. But what I did was I took my little cassette tape recorder in there and I listened to Bucky's speeches. So now I had access to all of Bucky's talks. And I started listening to his speeches to the world science design decade. And I just started, you know, I started listening and listening and listening. I'm an auditory learner. And I just, I just had hours and hours and hours and hours. Bucky was gone for those six weeks. His staff was in place, but he was not. And we had films and we had access to all kinds of wonderful projects and we were in domes and, you know, I mean, it was great, but Bucky was not there. It wasn't until the school started and, uh, and I was asked to come to World Game in Philadelphia. His office had moved to Philadelphia. 
And I was there to present about the initiative. Uh, at that time, we called it Upland Hills Farm School, a school for the future, you know. And so I was there to present and, um, and Bucky was there. And I walked into the bathroom and there he was. And I said, uh, you know, I started a school based on a lot of your ideas. And he said, how's it working? And I said, well, it's amazing. He says, where is it? And I said, it's in a forest in, uh, in, in Michigan. He said, oh, how far from Detroit? And I said, well, it's an hour from Detroit. He said, I have a lot of good friends there. He said, I'd like to visit this place sometime. You know? Wow. And so we had this, this little interaction, you know, and that's what happened. He came in 1980 and uh, the person who took care of him called me and said, he's giving a lecture at uh, Oakland University. I need somebody to pick him up. You know, at this point, he's 85 years old. He's traveling alone. You know, it, to him, this was just a little from Philadelphia to Detroit, but it was January and he didn't have really a winter coat. He had kind of this very thin little coat and he didn't have anybody traveling with him because the office really couldn't, couldn't expense that. For larger trips, there was almost always his grandson or some, somebody who was working with him, you know, Dan Richter, somebody who, that he was close, close with would travel with him. But this to him was nothing getting on a plane in Philadelphia and flying to Detroit and then coming back right after that, you know, so I picked him up after the lecture and then I was with him and that corresponded with the opening of the Upland Hills Ecological Awareness Center. So we birthed another nonprofit organization and he was the opening talk at the Upland Hills Ecological Awareness Center. His teaching was the first teaching that happened in this building that was built by the wind in part and that was a it was a, an attempt for a net energy building built out of natural on-site materials by a wind system you know, so that's yeah. that, that's how we met and phil this is this is so fascinating yeah thank you for dropping in there a little deeper and telling us the story i feel like i want to again bring bring in context to well, first of all, the world we live in today in 2019, which is like almost 40 years later, 2020 almost, right? And um, the, these ideas that Buckminster Fuller was such a steward and um, pioneering are, are more relevant than ever, right? A world that works for everyone. Uh, we, we're definitely more than able to create it from a technological or distribution point of view. And yet we still have a world that is, uh, works for a lot of us, I guess, but there is still poverty, hunger, um, health and well-being issues, right? Um, education issues around the world. And I want to, I want to just context it in that way. So we can, we can talk about education a little bit more and, you know, on the sustainable development goals, uh, that the United Nations is, is, you know, um, committed. And a lot of us are committed to even just give it our best in the next decade. So maybe until 2030, we can really move the needle on, on the well-being of the planet. Quality education is goal number four. And when I think of education from my global perspective, I feel like there's, there's, there are multiple divides, but there's a, the one obvious divide is that there are a lot of people in the world that don't have any education yet, that don't even have um, a form of education that 
you and I would possibly judge as, as just an industrial uh, curriculum that isn't really that needed. But there are people in the world, millions of people in the world that don't even have that initial form of learning to read, write, basic calculus, basic ways of relating. But then when, when you talk about education and, and the way you already um, prefaced it in this conversation, it's a complete different paradigm of education. I, I, you know, I sense it's exactly what I as a kid wanted, what I've been in support and in service of for the last decade as well, wherever I went in the world is education that actually creates access to freedom, I would say. Um, I know you call it love-based education. For me, it, it has a lot to do with freedom. The, the ability to be quality education, I would put synonymous with the ability to, to acknowledge, accept, and surrender into one's own freedom and the responsibilities that come with it. Because freedom is a great concept in the United States, often very celebrated, but true freedom brings responsibility with it, I believe. And it brings um, a form of interbeing or interconnectedness with it, because I can't be totally um, alone on this planet and I'm not, right? I'm, I'm here with, with 7 billion, 8 billion other humans. And so um, I wanna segue into that part of our conversation, hearing more about the context of the education from your perspective, because you, you were mentioning Upland Hills and like the Ecological Awareness Center and Bucky being the first person teaching in there. So something I know you shared with me before is that the, when we create learning centers, we create spaces for growth and for learning and for that education into freedom or education um, based on love. And we, we stack or compound the effect over years and years and years and years, right? student after student after student, teacher after teacher that come into those spaces to share and teach. The quality and integrity of those teachings become stronger and more lasting. Can you touch on that from your perspective or, or re rewire me if I, if I worded that wrong? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. I, 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 would, I, <clears throat> I would like to say something that at some point, just like I, I never liked labels, so being an educator means that you're going to be thrown labels all the time. And sometimes the children are going to be labeled and, and there's gonna be anachronisms and you're gonna say, well, what does that mean? And you know, the first time I heard ADHD, you know, I said, well, what happened to ADD? And you know, there was just a lot of that kind of thing. There was an attempt to try and understand what was happening in uh, globally, the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. And at some point, they called us the free school movement. So there was that word. It was right there. It was called the free school movement. And so it was another label, of course. And then I looked at the label and I felt into the label. And sometimes, you know, I would, we would be called a free school. And sometimes I would wonder, you know, is that really the best way to describe what we're doing? So mostly just questions that I didn't have answers to. You know, that sometimes when something fits, you just go, oh God, that feels fine. And other times you've got something and it just doesn't fit. So that's, I just wanted you to know that there was a, a movement called the free school movement. And we were definitely under that umbrella. It was also called the alternative school movement. And we were under that umbrella. Sometimes it was called the open classroom, you know, and some, in some ways we're, involved in that because there was some free choice in the open classroom and it was more um, developmentally uh, rather than age 
chronological age created. So all of those things. But I think it's, what you it's were- It's interesting. Sorry to jump in there again. Don't forget where you were about to go. I feel like words are so needed and obviously they bring limits with them as well, right? But if we don't know how to call, if we can't articulate the way of education we're creating, it's really hard for other people to onboard or connect with it, right? So, so labels and words, I think we could have a complete other episode just about that, you know? Well, uh, there's something that Bucky said in I Seem to Be a Verb, which is a great book. He said, I live on earth at present, and I don't know what I am. Really powerful for me, because that was a full stop. I live on earth at present and I don't know what I am. I know that I'm not a category. I'm not a thing. I'm not a noun. I seem to be a verb, an evolutionary process, an integral function of the universe. So that's, that's Buckminster Fuller. Yeah, and that is, I seem to be a verb, which came out the year that we, we began the school. So we had, I seem to be a verb out at that time. What I can tell you from being uh, part of an initiative that's 48 years old at this point, and for being the grand ah at this moment, meaning that I'm no longer the director of Upland Hills School these last five years, is that when you talk about there are so many kids on the planet who don't have school, a part of me saying, oh, part of that is good because school has become, it's still connected to the industrial model of education. Whenever you put that many children in one place, you are not a village any longer. As a matter of fact, some of the best initiatives in New York City is when they took that huge school system and they divided schools into parts while, and, and some of them were given far more empowerment and creativity and autonomy. So anytime you have, you know, a thousand kids in the same place, 500 kids in the same place, I mean, you, you're already in an industrial model of some sort. However, when we think about Bucky in that kindergarten and Phil in the, his kindergarten, and we think about what children really need, and this is children all over the world, every child. It has so much more to do with play in a loving environment than anything else. And that's not something that you have to have this hard curriculum about. If kids are given the opportunity to be with each other in smaller groups where there's trust and there's love and there's a real respect for the fact that Bucky would say every child is born a genius and de-geniused by the process of modern education. So if you, if you listen to children and you create a, a container where there's trust, where there's love, and where the teachers are guides, the, key, the teachers are also bond, bonded to each other. So there's a, a village of love there, then amazing things begin to happen. A new mycelium is in the, in the forest floor, and that mycelium creates mushrooms that we've never seen before and never experienced before. And what's in those mushrooms has the ability to heal the earth. And that's exactly what I think is going on right now 
in eco-villages and communities throughout the world. And if, <clears throat> if I was to be a, a consultant with the Minister of Education in Sri Lanka, and, and he or she was saying, here we have this half of the island, and this is what's going on here, and this is what's happening here, and these people are far more rural, and, and they don't have these, you know, these tools that they have over here. Part of me would know that play is universal, and it's built into our species, as is curiosity. And so a part of it would be, there's ways we can create containers that are wonderful ways for curiosity to be alive and vibrant connection to each other with a, with a staff of teachers who are really loving and dedicated. And then learning how to think and learning how to learn becomes the thing that emerges. And then the love of learning is connected to those things. And something that came out of the free school movement, there was a beautiful great-grandfather of the movement whose name was A.S. Neal. He had a school called Summerhill that was in Lyston, England. And there was a, a, a book called Summerhill, and it was a, it was a huge bestseller. I, it sold millions of copies in the 60s. And one of the things about A.S. Neal and his beautiful experiment, Summerhill, was someone began to inquire as to it as a pedagogy, because distinctions needed to be made. And one of those distinctions that we made early on here at Upland Hill School was um, uh, between freedom and license. And, and what, it was, what was required for, for children to have role models who, who had very clear boundaries and very clear expectations about what is naturally inborn in all children curiosity and care and kindness. So we were of the free school movement. There was, let's say, the A.S. Neal Summerhillian schools over here. And there were things like us who were kind of in the middle. And in that middle, we knew that we weren't going to pump the curriculum from the kids and their interests. What do you want to eat? Cocoa and marshmallows all day long. You know, what do you want to learn? nothing. I just want to, you know, I want to build forts, you know. We weren't going to pump the curriculum from the kids. We were going to create a context for them to learn, and they would learn everything in context, Comp comprehensive units, we called them. And they would learn, their curiosity would be piqued. There would be so much art and so much music and so much play and so much exciting freedom to, in terms of to, to be able to make and do and be and act it out. You know, theater was so much a part of all of our early experiments, you know, that we knew that uh, freedom needed to be in the hands of adults who were um, clearly conscious parents and conscious teachers. And that changes everything. So, you know, in a very short period of time, obviously if we did 20 segments of Green Planet, Blue Planet, we could get deeper into those things. But I think that what you were asking is, is really, um, how do we address the needs of this planet, 7.5 billion people at this moment, and what can we do? And I would say that every, everywhere in the world, 
children need to play and they need to be curious. Ashley Montague, a great mentor of mine who wrote the book, Growing Young. In that book on page 132, there are the 26 neotenous traits, meaning the traits that preserve youth-like characteristics for the entire adult life. And they're all wonderful things that you would love to hear because they're to dance and to make music and to think soundly and to, you know, all of those things are a part of the neotenous traits. But those things are things that can be um, created in small schools or small groups that are really kind of earth schools. You know, they're, they're connected to the natural world and they are all about friendships. So just like the miracle of our friendship or every friendship that you can, can conjure up, that needs to be at the center of the curriculum of a new paradigm in education. Wow, that's something I've not, not heard like that before, that friendships or relationships need to be at the center of a curriculum. It makes so much sense. I, you know, give a lot of um, ear, I would say, to the questions around trust in this podcast, because I, I sense that trust, you know, is number one of what humanity kind of requires more of to, to collaborate, to work together, yeah, intercultural trust trust in friendships, trust in relationships, trust at work. Um, and it trust always happens in my observation when people spend time with each other. Trust doesn't happen if we're trying to get to a point really fast and um, just trying to, to get to the, the place. And I find it really curious what you're saying because it, it connects to education and education around the world, but it really connects to the, that lack of role models of, of adults that can guide uh, contextual frameworks that are centered around what's innate curiosity and play, but that are not limited to, yeah, as you said, like we're not going to source all of that from the children because the answer of I don't want to learn anything or I'm going to eat just cocoa and and and, sh and ice cream for for lunch. That's obviously um, part of the the childlike or the childish essence as well. And I feel like this is where. You know, in, in my observation of, of this, this, the way the society is set up, I feel this is where the divide has happened, where adults say, well, children are not to be taken serious. That's why we won't listen to children. But that never felt natural to me. The, the curiosity and the wonder that is within children um, is something quite the opposite. Everyone that turned older that I felt has a healthy sense of self kept this youthfulness, kept this childlike... Um, yeah, it's almost like a sparkle, you know, that sparkle alive. And and so that sparkle has nothing to do with being nonsensical in my eyes. It has to do with 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 understanding that that both the like the adult mind and the clarity and when we need to be serious, we can be in those elements. But really that's just the framework and the small part of who we are. Much larger is this this side of ourselves where we're free, we're expressing, we're creating art, we're singing, we're dancing, we're we're painting, we're, we're, we're building buildings that actually make us feel good. We're building societies and public places that make us feel good. Yeah, there's a distinction between being childish and being childlike. And so it, it really has a lot to do with our little egos and, and how we are developing them. But in a situation like ours, where we place so much emphasis on collaboration and cooperation, 
then we're always building in conflict resolution. And trust is always about somebody is going to betray that trust. Somebody is going to break the trust. So if, you, if you're going to teach trust or you're going to model trust, you have to be ready to apologize. You have to be ready to do reconciliation. You have to be ready to uh, have the hardest conversations of your lives in order to form a deeper bond. And so when, uh, when I look back now at our experiment here, which as I said is 48 years old, what I can say now is the relationships that the staff has formed with each other over these 48 years. And there, it wasn't true of every single staff member, but there's a core of us. That relationship is like the pure gold. It's the pure gift. It's the true gift of, of being a teacher because we know that, that that bond that we have with Gene and with Holly and with Ted and, and with uh, John, that, that bond that we have increases in value every minute of every day. So even though we might be far away from each other geographically, we know that we have inside of us one of the greatest gifts that you could ever receive. And that's that gift of loving the true essence, the true soul, the, the soul's code in another. And that is, um, that is so much better than a pension. <laughs> I can't even tell you. <laughs> it, it means that we have invested in something that only grows with time. And it has the ability to sustain us through the most difficult challenges. When I was paralyzed recently with Guillain-Barre syndrome, I, I realized that over a four week period, I was, I, there was visitors that came into my room and came into my space. There were somewhere between 40 and 60 people who came into that room during the four weeks I was in that hospital. Every visit that I had by one of those people changed my life and my cellular structure. I know that I got better because I had good care and I had some good doctors and some not so good doctors. I had some really great nurses and I had some really terrible nurses. Um, so I, I have a lot to be thankful for in terms of the, the people who took care of me at the hospital that I was at. But I'll tell you I, what I feel in my bones is that my healing came because of my community, our community. Is the, is the reason that I came back as strong as I did. It was because of the community. So that is what I think I can share from a monastery perspective and from a forest, going out of the monastery after 48 years, which is what Karen and I are about to do. You know, what we have to share really is that we know the most precious gift is not something you can buy on Amazon. Yeah, that resonates so true. This reminds me actually of Charles Eisenstein. Um, actually on this show, he made, he made an example once when you go out, play in the forest for several hours and you know, possibly even with a child and you explore what creatures are around and look at the moss or, or uh, you know, have just, just a rich 
but also regular forest experience. When you come back, I'm totally butchering this metaphor, but when you come back into this modern life that we lead, you're probably not needing to buy something right after it because you're actually filled, right? There is a level of satisfaction um, that the natural world very reliably instills in us. You know, Charles Eisenstein is a part of the community that I'm about to travel to, to move to. I'm not sure exactly his role, but I know that I stayed in a room that he lived in when I was there recently. And we certainly are thinking about he and his wife and family being a part of the future of Highland Lake Cove. And so it's a beautiful connection to, to make because uh, although I have not yet met Charles, I have listened to him and, and um, I've read things that he's written and I find that alignment that is complete and total in so many ways. And so um, one of the reasons that we've decided to move to North Carolina and leave our forest here in Michigan is because we know that there's an adventure that still awaits. And this one is up and running and it's doing beautifully and it has all the challenges that it's gonna need. And uh, for us to be able to, like a parent, to just say, we totally are in alignment with you. We love you. You'll never leave our hearts, but Karen and I still have another adventure in front of us. And so that's, that's why Charles is kind of neat to come into this conversation is because I'm excited about getting to know him as we unfold a new chapter. Phil, thank you so much for being on, on this episode and this chapter of our conversation. It sounds like we'll, we'll have to reconvene once you made the move to North Carolina and, and, and ex expand into a new chapter of, of your life. I feel like, you know, after 48 years um, of stewarding this project of Upland Hills uh, School, there are probably dozens and dozens of people that you, as you said, you can trust to steward it now forward. So. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing, for the insights, for the stories, um, for the metaphors that, that help me learn and help us, us all grow in, in, in insight and in perspective. Is there anything else you want to share at this point? Um, I just want to thank you. Um, we've always had this beautiful rapport since we met. And I love that uh, what you're doing and what you're offering. I think that this initiative is, is greatly needed to be able to share conversations like uh, the one that you had with Charles and, and this one as well. And um, I, I guess I'm looking for uh, a Bucky quote. So here's one that, that I just picked. I have like a fortune cookie on my, on my desk next to me. It says, we are now synergetically forced to conclude that all phenomena are metaphysical. Wherefore, as many have long suspected, like it or not, life is but a dream. A play with form, like a dream. Thank you so much, Phil. What a great quote to end it on. Yeah, thank you. that's that another episode of green planet blue planet podcast i hope you truly enjoyed this one and received some insights knowledge and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life into your relationships 
or maybe even into your business and the way you show up for the world. Because this is a movement and we're all part of it. Very much so. And we're in this together. We're here to create a world of a triple bottom line where you win, I win, and the entire planet wins. We're raising consciousness together and you know that. That's why you're listening. That's why I love you. So make sure to share the love. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Invite a friend to listen to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And if you have an idea who else you'd like me to interview, make sure you reach out and send me a suggestion. Definitely check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com, the website to the podcast. I've created a lot of different offers for you, free content, free meditations for you to amplify your connection to self.